Have you ever gone in the wrong direction and ended up in the right place? How about never? <laughs> that is an impossible thing to happen. You might have thought you were going in the wrong direction and ended up in the right place because you were actually going in the right direction but didn't know it. But no one ever ends up in the right place when they go in the wrong direction. Right? Right? <laughs> in a similar way, God's word says emphatically, there is only one path that leads to life. And what I mean by life is the fullness of God's blessings, is the favor of God. Every other path leads to death and judgment. God says that if you're going in the wrong direction, you'll end up in the wrong place every single time. But if you go in the right direction, the direction that he tells you to go in, you will end up in the right place every single time. This is why it is so helpful that God distinguishes for us the right path from the wrong path. And he does this for us over and over and over and over and over and over again throughout scriptures, doesn't he? Sometimes God reminds us of the path that leads to life. And if you remember last week, that's what God did for us in chapter 56, verses 1 through 8. And he described the path in various ways, right? Other times, he reminds us of the path that leads to death and the judgment that follows, like he does in the passage we are looking at today. And I'm sure you recognized that, didn't you, when I read those verses. And I want to remind you that it is not a waste of time for God to remind us of the path that leads to judgment over and over and over again. These passages are not usually the ones we memorize, are they? But they are very important for us to hear. And I want us to understand this passage kind of in contrast to the last passage we looked at. Last week, we looked at how what the path of life looks like. And how those who walk on this path of life will receive the fullness of God's blessings despite any other factors that seem to disqualify them in this life. Such as, remember what they were? Such as being a Gentile and not a Jew. Such as being a eunuch. Not having the, the, the physical abilities that others have. And so what it says there in that passage was those who walk the path of faith, the path of life, will receive the fullness of God's blessings, regardless of any other factors. And what an incredible word of comfort for those who would have been outcasts in their society, who would have thought of themselves as being inadequate, as being not capable of not having what other people have, and therefore not receiving the fullness of God's blessings. The all-inclusiveness of the blessings of God for those who come to God His way. Awesome, awesome, encouraging words from God. But today we're looking at the opposite side of the coin. 
We will look at the path of unbelief and how those who walk the path of unbelief will not receive any of God's blessings despite any other external factors that might otherwise seem to qualify them for God's blessings. They will receive the judgment of God and the fullness of God's judgment. It doesn't matter your ethnicity. It doesn't matter who your parents are. It doesn't matter how blessed you seem to be on earth with children and wealth. If you are following the path of unbelief, not one of the blessings of God belongs to you. And all the curses of God belong to you. So we can have the most clear view of the path that leads to glory only when we contrast it with the wrong path that leads to judgment. And so therefore, I want us to embrace this passage. And I want us to hear it and to look at our own lives and understand, am I on the path that leads to life? Because there's only one path that leads to life. So first we see the path of a leadership that would lead to God's judgment. And so we can ask ourselves, what is the type of leadership that leads to judgment? What is the type of leadership that invites the judgment of God upon itself? And the very first words we see in this passage are God calling for judgment to fall upon the people that he is describing. Notice these words. All you beasts of the field come to devour all you beasts in the forest. These are scary words. God is calling down judgment on these people. And these are words that were referred to the covenant curses of God. That's how these words would have been understood. He is calling the nations to devour his people. These are words of judgment. Terrifying, terrifying words. Feel the weight of it. And when God calls beasts to devour, they are going to devour. Who are these people that God is so angry at? Well, you notice there are three words that describe them, that tell us who we're referring to here. The first one is watchmen. They would refer to the prophets. Shepherds. They were the rulers, the kings, the government. Then there are dogs. And those are the people who warn, right? By barking, who protect and warn from danger. And so perhaps what this first section is telling us is that all the leadership are included here. That this is all the leadership from every part of the leadership that would have possibly been included that he's speaking of here, the entire leadership. So what kind of leadership would have brought the judgment of God upon them. How would bad leadership be described? So first, bad leadership is not aware or able to warn those under their care of the danger that is approaching. And is this not what God says when he says that the watchmen are blind? The first part of verse 10, his watchmen are blind. And so we need to ask ourselves, And this is so obvious, we hardly need to ask it. What is the responsibility of a watchman? To watch. watch. Thank you. (laughs) A watchman is to keep their eye out for danger, right? They're supposed to um, be aware 
and alert to the danger that could approach the people that they care for or are protecting. And then they can warn and, uh, and make aware to the people how to protect themselves from that danger that lies ahead. And so a good leader must have vision to see the danger that lies ahead and to help those under their care by protecting them from that danger. That is an absolute essential quality of a good leader. What good is a blind watchman? What good is a watchman who is blind and cannot tell or doesn't want to tell of the danger that lies ahead? They are absolutely useless. They are good for nothing if they're a watchman who is blind. Bad leadership is also leadership that lacks knowledge. It says here in the second part of verse 10 that they are all without knowledge. And really to say they're without knowledge is simply explaining what it means that they are blind, right? This is what it means that they are blind is that they don't have knowledge. They don't have the wisdom to discern between truth and error. They don't know what is dangerous and what is not dangerous, or they don't care about it. It means nothing to them. This is the nature of their blindness, is that they are without the common sense, spiritual common sense, to know what is right and wrong. And notice it says they're without knowledge three different times here. So this is a very significant problem that the leaders have. And to lack knowledge here doesn't mean that they don't know anything, right? They could be some of the most knowledgeable people in the world, right? They could know all kinds of things and be amazingly worldly wise in their understanding. But to be lacking in knowledge here refers to being lacking of everything that really matters, the real matters that will do you any good. For instance, They do not understand the nature of their task. They do not understand the nature of their times. They do not understand the nature of the people that they are protecting. They do not understand what the people actually need. They do not even understand their own nature. They do not understand their own failings and their own weaknesses and their own problems that plague them. And most importantly, they do not understand the nature of God. And so all of this, all of this knowledge that we're talking about here is knowledge that only comes from God. And it only comes from God's mouth. So you must have an ear to hear the truth of God's word if you're to have the knowledge that matters. To be able to protect God's people and have an eye out for danger. You cannot protect or lead anyone anywhere without this knowledge. And that is why the Bible says that pastors are to study, to show themselves approved unto God, a workman who is not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And that all of us should be that way, shouldn't we? That all of us should be that way. Bad leadership also fails to warn those under their care of danger. Verse 10, the third part. They are all silent dogs. They cannot bark. So really, this is just building up on itself, isn't it? So what is the purpose of a watchdog? Right? They're supposed to bark when there's something dangerous, right? So they can warn people that there's danger ahead. And the result of having no knowledge 
is that they are mute and silent when danger is approaching the people they are supposed to be watching. They cannot warn those who are in any danger and do them any good at all. You, you know, people who cannot warn, people who are mute and silent when there is danger around them, are completely useless. They're completely useless. They do absolutely no good. They're a liability. You know, I think of some of the famous people that are out there, like Joel Olstein. You know, a, a completely useless leader. Because he has no ability to warn those under his care. Bad leadership is spiritually lazy. Right? They're dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. You know, interesting how they're described here, isn't it? That they love to sleep, an ordinate desire for sleep. And it's not talking about someone who just physically struggles with sleep, right? You know, and, and they're, they really want to sleep. That, that's not what we're talking about here. Such people love to sleep. And this is a spiritual slumber. This is a spiritual laziness. That's what we're talking about here. And in fact, when they're living and continue to live their lives, it is as if they're still asleep. It's as if they're in a dream world, right? They're lazy, and particularly when it comes to spiritual things. And there's a lot of laziness out there that's dangerous, isn't it? But there's nothing as dangerous as being spiritually lazy. That is the, most, the greatest danger to anyone's soul is spiritual laziness. They don't take the initiative. They don't have a fire to know the truth deep down in their belly. They don't read their Bibles, even though they are told and coached and encouraged to over and over again. I've done discipleship with such people. And it's like every week you get there, did you read your Bible? Can you do it this week? Can you just, just pick up your Bible two minutes every day? Let's start there, you know, work our way from there. And the next week you're like, just try it again. Try it this week, you know. Um, but they take no initiative. They have no desire. They're lazy. They need someone looking over their shoulders all the time to coax them and direct them. But they don't want to go in that direction anyway. So it really doesn't do any good. Would you hire such a person who loves sleep supremely to be your watchman? I mean, if you took out, um, some, if, you were, if you were hiring people to be your watchman, right? And, and, and you were interviewing people. And this person slept all the time. You say, I love to sleep. I just sleep all the time. Can I be your watchman? Would you hire them? Uh, hopefully not. <laughs> They would be sleeping when you needed them the most. It would do you no good. You know, I read this quote from a blog about a week ago, and uh, I thought it was kind of pertinent to what we're talking about. A wise pastor used to say, anything good done in this world is done by tired people. <laughs> you know, um, and I heard someone else say that this person got tired of... Um, of, of uh, telling this person, I think their professor, that they were, that they were, that they were, that they were sleepy because their professor would just say, everyone's tired, <laughs> we're all tired. <laughs> Bad leadership is not merely lazy, but they're also mastered or controlled by selfish and greedy appetites. Notice in verse 11, the dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. You see, on the one end, they're lazy in regards to the spiritual things that they should be pursuing, right? But they're also passionately hard at work pursuing what they should not be pursuing. Inordinate desires. 
They are selfish. They are pursuing their own gain. Passionate about their desires. So yes, in spiritual things they're lazy. But in worldly things they are diligent and vigilant and passionate and hard at work. To fill themselves up. They never have enough. Such leadership is kind of like a dog who is passionate for food, right? If they, if they have some food they want, they're going to run right over you. They don't care what's in your way. If you have food for them, they will love you, right? If you have what they want, they will love you to death. They'll do anything for you if you give them what they want. But if you're in their way, they're going to run right over you, right? That's exactly the way it is, isn't it? The problem is that pursuing your appetite this way never satisfies. You never get enough. You keep trying to fill yourself, but you never feel satisfied. So you always want more and more and more, thinking that somehow the next bit of whatever you're eating is going to somehow fill you up and somehow going to make you satisfied, but it never works. Your life becomes one long, vain attempt at satisfying yourself with unsatisfiable things. What a vain life. What kind of leader do you think such persons controlled by selfish appetites would make? Well, you'll be incapable of loving others, right? Such a leader who is driven and consumed by their own appetites would be truly incapable of loving others. They might look like they love others when people give them what they want, but they are truly incapable of loving others. You get a leader who is a real lover, right? But not of you or of God, but himself. It reminds us how important it is that we love what is right. That we love what God loves and hate what God hates. That we love and satisfy ourselves in what is truly satisfying, right? We looked at this a couple weeks ago. Jesus said, come to me, all you who thirst. (laughs) He says, come to me. I am the only thing that can satisfy. I am the only one who can satisfy your thirst. Is this not the battle that we need to be engaged in every day if we are to love others and live the right way? If you are not satisfying yourself in God, you will destroy others rather than love others. It goes hand in hand. You can't love others unless you are satisfied in God. It's impossible. To be satisfied in love with what is truly lovely is to love Christ himself. And the good news is that God never calls us to suppress our gratification. The true gratification that is only found in Christ. He says to pursue it with all your heart and with all your mind. And only there and only in that position will you be a loving person and will this church be a loving church. And then as strange as this might sound, these are the very people who were shepherds of God's people. Listen to the words here and listen to the way this is written. But they are shepherds. But they are shepherds. But these are the people who are shepherds. <laughs> Incredible. It's to emphasize the ironic nature of the fact that these are the people who are leading God's people. These are the most unqualified people you could ever come across. 
And there we are given a summary of the bad leadership and what it looks like. They are those who have no understanding, who have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. And here's, here's the language that should, that should just be obvious to us that what we're speaking of here are unbelievers. Each one has turned to his own way. That's the language, language of an unbeliever. And we, we see it in Isaiah chapter 53 and Romans as well. It's a language that describes those who have no interest in the things of God. They are those who are not regenerate. Those who have no transformed heart. These leaders are not interested in the things of God. Not in the truth, at least. And so their way which they have turned is that which brings the most profit in their mind and their heart. Which is the farthest thing from God they could find. They could go. This means that instead of pursuing the good of the flock, they will fleece the flock. They will use them as a means for their own profit, either socially or financially, or for fame, or uh, for their namesake. They will minister as an opportunity for personal gain and advancement. That is their goal. And if you don't pursue God, this is what you will pursue is yourself. Someone said this, they are unqualified in every way, every single thing about them disqualifies them in every way. And such bad leadership is nothing new. It has always been around and will continue to be around until Christ returns. So we should not be surprised, but we do need to be alert, don't we? We do need to be aware, and we do need to understand what it looks like. And then we close here in this section with an illustration of what this bad leadership looks like. Now, you know, we're not finished until we have an illustration. We're not finished until we have impressed the picture of what bad leadership looks like on us with an illustration. So this is what it looks like. Come, they say, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink. And tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. So here's someone calling for drink and saying, hey, join me, we're going to keep drinking. This person is a drunkard, and they live for drink every single day. And the problem here, and what identifies this person for who he truly is, as someone who is a bad leader, an ungodly person, is that they think this will continue on forever. They don't think anything's going to change. Regardless of what they claim to believe about God, this is an atheist. This is a practical atheist. They could claim to have all the best knowledge of God and to believe all the right things about God, but this person is living out practical atheism. They're living as if they will not give account to God. That life is just going to continue the way it is. And that is the way the unbeliever lives their life. They have to ignore the reality of God. They have to push the reality of God outside of their lives and live as if they will never give account to God. And that is the life of unbelief. And the reality is that they are deceived and they are mastered. They are the slaves, regardless of what they think. And they will one day meet the judgment of God. So everyone who is in leadership position or wants to be needs to be warned and feel the weight of these words. This is what brings the judgment of God upon them and upon the people. Are you willing and able to learn? To learn from the warnings of Scripture? For the eternal safety of God's people? 
Are you passionate to equip people to meet and to respond to these threats in a way that will give them protection? Do you really care about those who are under your charge? And I'm saying this to myself. Incoming leaders, this is particularly your responsibility and it's my responsibility. And you need to help us. And how can you help us if you're not aware of what a leader should look like? You know, there are so many different ways the world um, describes or thinks a leader should look like, and many of them are worldly and vain. You know, are not based on biblical principles and biblical truths. And so if you are to hold us accountable and you need to hold us accountable, then you need to know what a leader should look like in God's words. And leaders, we need to know what we should be doing and what is the way that leads to judgment. So second, we see on this strange path, we see that God takes for bringing judgment and salvation. And this is such a strange path that God brings for judgment and salvation. It's one we never would have imagined on our own. But he does this through the removal of the righteous from the earth. God brings salvation and judgment. And think about this, the strangest path you would ever imagine. God brings judgment and salvation through the removal of the righteous from the earth. What is judgment for the unbelieving world is salvation for the righteous. Notice the words here. The righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. So what is happening here? And what is happening here is the righteous is being taken out of this world. They're disappearing. They're becoming scarce. And devout men, by the way, is a word that is used for covenant, faithful men, men of unfailing love. They are the righteous and faithful men who know the love of God. They are the people in the last um, passage that we looked at last week who are living righteous and just lives and are holding fast to the Sabbath, keeping God at the center of their lives. And we're not told how, but somehow they are removed. Maybe God just takes them providentially. Or maybe they are being persecuted and killed. We don't know and it doesn't tell us. But notice that the people and what the leadership is like here. That they are so concerned about their own comforts and their own pleasure that they are completely unaware of what is happening around them. They have no idea that the righteous are being taken away. And it's really not surprising, isn't it? It's not surprising that they're unaware of this. Because they are blind to what is really important anyway. They wouldn't even notice it. They are busy making themselves secure and comforted. They don't even notice. If anything, the fewer the righteous people on earth, the more happy the unrighteous are. Right? They feel like they're winning. But God explains what he is doing. He is rescuing the righteous through death. God says he takes them away to remove them from the calamity. And we're not told exactly what that calamity is, but he is keeping them from the calamity. God is removing them from the evil of this world. And so what it says, not just is he removing them from the evil of this world, but he's bringing them into a state of peace. He's bringing them into a state of comfort and of joy. And this is not loss for the righteous. There is nothing lost for the righteous when God removes them. It is gain. It is God's mercy 
It is God's goodness. Death for the righteous is a gift, delivering them from the evil and the the tumultuousness of this world and bringing them into peace and comfort. And the world does not notice that those who were unnoticed by the world are rewarded by God as they enter his presence. And because of Christ's victory over the grave, death for the righteous is no longer something to be terrified by. It's actually gain, it's delight, it's release into the peace and the comfort of God. Because Christ was raised from the dead, victorious over every enemy, therefore death is not to be feared. It is to be welcomed for those who are in Christ. Yes, it is to be feared by everyone who is outside of Christ. But to those who are in Christ, there is nothing to fear about death. And so we might misunderstand this. and We might feel like God is being cruel and bringing people over to the, to the same, same condition that the unrighteous are, are headed towards. But no, it's not cruel at all. This is his goodness. So what is salvation for his people is judgment to the rest of the world. You see, imagine what the unrighteous can do when the righteous is taken away. It is truly the righteous that are keeping the world from falling apart. (laughs) It is truly the righteous that are holding this world together, even though the unrighteous have no idea and would never acknowledge it. They are the stabilizing, preserving blessings to this world. And the removal of the preserving influence will bring society to its end quicker and faster. And in fact, David lamented the removal of the righteous. What can we do if the righteous are removed? In Psalm 28, verse 1. Third, we see the path mankind takes that invites God's judgment on themselves. What is the path that invites the judgment of God on someone? And we got to remember that he's speaking to those who are within Israel who are not truly Israel. Right? That's what he's speaking to here. God took a nation out of the world. And he set them apart. And within that nation, there were always a remnant of believing Jews, right? And what we're referring to here is that remnant of believing, uh, uh, sorry, those who are not the remnant. Those who are outside of God's favor. Those who are unbelieving and living according to that unbelieving path. And we know today that those who are the true people of God are the church, right? And so... So if you need to look at your life and ask yourself, is this me? Is this the path that I am taking? Because this is the path that leads to judgment. And we need to examine our lives and ask ourselves, are we truly in the faith? Or are we outside of the faith? So first we hear the words of judgment. God says, but you draw near. Tells us God is going to speak judgment to these people. This is a scary thought once again. And God describes those on whom he brings judgment. In verse 3, God brings judgment on those who embrace the world and are not loyal to God. Listen to this, these words. Sons of sorcerers, offspring of the adulterer, and loose woman. See, God is addressing those who would have taken particular pride, right, in their lineage. They would have taken pride in being of Jewish descent, But here God says their descent is meaningless because they are living like pagans. Their pagan life reveals the true condition of their heart. You see, true faith looks like something. 
right? That's what James said. Faith without works is dead. It's not real. And so their bloodline that they hold so firmly to, that they take so much pride in, is useless. They are behaving more like their children of sorcery or of witchcraft than they are children of God. And so we might wonder, what is the big deal with sorcery? Why does that even matter? Why does God care so much? Isn't it just kind of a fun thing, you know, that horoscope you see in, in the newspaper? Well, when we used to use newspapers, uh, the, the horoscope on there. Well, it is a big deal, an eternally big deal. You see, when we look to someone else as telling the future, as being in control of the future, as a somehow determining what's going to happen in life, as being in charge of things, they are, in fact, taking God's place. And that is idolatry. That is the very essence of wickedness, is to attempt to take God's place. Horoscopes, even on a newspaper, are wicked, wicked things. They're also behaving more like children of an adulterer or a prostitute. Now, adultery is the breaking of a pledge, isn't it? being unfaithful to the covenant. And there is one covenant that matters, isn't there? And that is being loyal and faithful to God. We owe him our devotion. And so these people were prostituting themselves, adulterizing themselves by being disloyal to God. You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Do you think it's really nice for Isaiah to preach like this? I mean, you've got to remember that he is calling out these people's sins. And he would be speaking directly to them and preaching this to them and speaking and directing his message to their sins. I wonder how, much, how many of us would say, I don't want to hear this anymore. <laughs> I don't want to hear someone speaking to me like this. But we have to remember that this is what we need to hear, Right? We need to hear this. This is a good preacher. Isaiah is preaching like we should preach today. Directly, not mincing words. God's bring judgment on those who mock the righteous, verse 4. You know, it is a typical thing for the unrighteous to mock the righteous. You see, the pagan unbeliever will always think, as long as they are an unbeliever, even if they say otherwise, that they are superior to the righteous. That's the, what it means to be unbelieving, to think you are superior to the righteous. And the lives of the righteous will also be a constant reminder to the unrighteous of their wicked ways. It is not surprising that they will mock you. So be prepared to be mocked, right? And what's amazing is that such mocking often comes from professing believers. Isn't that true? Let me give you an illustration. It is all around us more than we would ever want to admit. If you say, for instance, on Facebook, that God made them male and female, and marriage is for one man and one woman, and for one man and one woman alone, <laughs> then you'll be mocked. And you'll even be mocked, surprisingly, oftentimes by believers who say you're being divisive. Is it divisive to agree with God? I don't think so. 
But I've even heard pastors, you know, say we don't want to be divisive. And obviously we don't want to be mean, but we got to speak the truth, don't we? We got to speak the truth. And you can say any other view, and it is somehow loving and even righteous. Isn't that interesting, the way our culture is turning? That it is righteous to say everything contrary to God and unrighteous to say what God's word plainly says. Isn't that amazing? There's a righteous spin being brought on things. But Jesus said that if you are mocked, then you are blessed. Matthew 5, verse 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. God brings judgment on those who claim to be loyal to God but embrace the worship patterns of the world in verses 4 through 6. You know what they're probably doing there, and you'll have to look at that on your own, <laughs> is that they're probably embracing different religions and, and inc incorporating God and his truth into the fa false religions of the world. And that's probably why it says they were deceitful and liars. But God will not give them any credit for mixing, synchronizing the religions of this world with the religions of God, with, with God's truth. You know, I was talking to someone yesterday, and, I, and we were... Uh, um, they, they came to my house. They wanted to give me some kind of solar thing. I didn't, wasn't interested in solar, but I said, I, said, um, I said to this person, I said, either Jesus is a liar or he's lunatic or he's God. <laughs> you can't have any other, right? And uh, how often do we like to synchronize things? And this person was just kind of saying, well, I just want to be a good person, you know. And I said, you can't do that. You can't do that. I even told him that the word of God would crush him if he read it. <laughs> uh, anyway. So God won't give you any credit if you mix things. And perhaps they wanted something new and exciting. But what does God say their reward is? What does God say their reward is? Just an interesting thing that God says here. He says, your reward is a smooth rock. That's what he says. That's your portion. And Probably what it's talking about here is these rocks that the water would have come over like for a long time. It would have kind of made them look like weird shapes or whatever like that. And so they would go and worship them, right? And so he says, okay, okay, you can have what you want. You can have your smooth rock. That is your portion. But what does David say his portion is? Our portion is God, right? Don't exchange God for a rock, Everything else is a rock. It's worthless, right? God is our portion. And so God will not relent of his judgment. And then God brings judgment on those who replace him with other lovers. And so here's these people. They've broken the covenant. They're, they're seeking a new covenant with someone else. They're whoring after other lovers. And the language here is crude, but it's appropriate because there's a double way they were committing these adulterous um, um, relationships you know they were not only um, going against they were actually literally practicing these things by practicing the pagan rituals but they're also denying God himself and, and adulterizing themselves with God prostituting themselves against God and some of this they did behind closed doors with ma which makes no difference even though they might think it does 
and there is something in our hearts that doesn't believe that God is enough. And God brings judgment on those who persist in replacing God even though they're aware that it is a vain pursuit. And notice, they search high and low for their lovers in verse 9 through 10. They wearied themselves up out with their lovers, but they never give up hope. They never give up hope. They keep pursuing their idols of this world, whatever that may be, fame, money, whatever, drink, alcohol. She simply found someone else to pour their love on, to find their, to try to pursue their satisfaction with. They became inflamed with someone else. And so God exposes the problem that they have with a series of questions. He says, whom did you dread and fear so that you lied and did not remember me, did not lay it to heart? Have I not held my peace even for a long time and you did not fear me? God says, did I not give you time to repent? You did not fear me. That is the problem here. It's not that they feared someone else too much. It's that they, they failed to fear God. When you fear God, you're going to follow in the path that God has for you. And so God gave them time to repent, but they just take it as God saying that he doesn't care. Proof that God doesn't exist, but God was graciously and kind giving them time. You know, every time we do not die, it's the amazing grace of God, isn't it? Every time we sin and do not die, it's the amazing grace of God. One preacher that I listened to said this, Perhaps if God meted out instant justice on sinners, we would pay more attention to him. Kind of like Ananias and Sapphira, right? Of course, the world would be quickly depopulated so that it is not really an option for a loving God. (laughs) God gives the verdict for such actions and adultery in verses 12 through 13. God will not remain silent forever. And God is going to bring up their righteousness before them. And what what are they going to have when God brings up their righteousness? They're going to have absolutely nothing to gain from it. Their righteousness is as filthy rags. It is worthless. And God's judgment will expose the truth of our righteousness. So what is the answer here? How do we escape God's judgment? What is the path to safety? Notice all of this and here is the answer. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. That is the answer right there. You might wonder, why did we have to read such a discouraging passage? Because only when we see the the hopelessness of all other paths will we see the glorious grace of God in the path that he has provided for us. Only then will we flee for refuge in the one place where we can find it. And so it is so dangerous to even, to even entertain for a moment that there is any other path because it will destroy us. Proverbs 13 verse 12 tells us that we would otherwise take every other path. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end leads to death. And so we need to hear such passages today. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said. said, Nothing teaches us about the preciousness of the Creator as much as when we learn the emptiness of everything else. So what is the refuge? The refuge is the suffering servant himself. He came to atone for our sins, to bring us to the Father through dealing with our sin problem. And the life of faith looks like running to him daily in repentance and renewed trust. 
And the difference between those on the path of judgment and those who are on the path of salvation is simply where you go to for refuge. Abandon all other refuges and run to Christ because one day everything else will be revealed for what it is and it will be found wanting. You will not be able to find shelter anywhere else. So you and I must run to Christ. Believers, run to Christ. Unbelievers, run to Christ. He is the only refuge you can find because the wrath of God's judgment is going to come. And we can only find refuge if we find it in Christ. Would you describe your life as running for refuge to the Lord? If so, then you are living a life of faith. And I pray that that is true of every single one of us. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, I thank you for your word, God. I thank you for this long passage, God, that spoke so clearly, so disgustingly, Lord, of wickedness and judgment that is coming. God, I pray that our ears are open. I pray that you soften our hearts. I pray that you crush our stony hearts, Lord, and show us, Lord, that there is no hope for safety outside of Christ. That the only hope we have is for running and fleeing to safety in you, Jesus. And we thank you that you have brought us a salvation that is complete, a salvation, Lord, that will not fail. Lord, you said, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And Lord, I pray this week that we would live lives of constantly running to refuge in you, Jesus. Of repentance and faith. We love you and praise you and thank you for being our refuge. Thank you for the salvation that you have brought to us. In Jesus' name, amen.